0: Today we start a new six-week series called Be the Church in which we want to consider or reconsider uh, our privileges and responsibilities as uh, members of the church. We're gonna look today at this uh, uh, somewhat familiar text if you've been a Christian for a while, Ephesians chapter two, 11 to 22, as we think about this family to which we belong now uh, as the church. This is a very significant text as one scholar, Klein Snodgrass, great name, says that this is perhaps the single most significant ecclesiological text in the New Testament. Ecclesiology being the study of the church. So it seems like a good place for us to start uh, this series on the church. And let's pray and ask for the Lord's help as we jump into it together. Father, as we often pray around here, what we know not, please teach us. What we have not, please give us. What we are not, please make us. Through Christ we pray. Amen. Pastor Alistair Begg tells the following story. In the 1920s, Lord Reith helped to establish the BBC, the British Broadcasting Corporation, and then from 1927 onwards served as its uh, director general. He was somewhat, Begg says, a, a severe man from the highlands of Scotland. And when the BBC began to be carried along by the tide of secularism that swept through Britain in the 60s, a young producer stood up in a meeting and told Lord Reith that the world was changing and that the BBC did not need to continue with its religious programming output. He insisted that people were no longer interested in it and that the church was becoming increasingly obsolete. Lord Reith, who was six foot six, stood up and told this young man to take a seat. And he said, The church will stand at the grave of the BBC yes it will it will stand at the grave of every news outlet it will exist it will stand when every organization and institution and empire has come to an end it is Jesus's church and only of the church did he say I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it and what we really need to see and need to come back to again and again is the church from this New Testament perspective And one of the books that gives us, I think, a lofty vision of Christ's church is the book of Ephesians. We're going to look at one of the texts here in just a moment, but let me uh, remind you of a couple of other uh, very impressive verses in this letter. Chapter 3, verse 10, Paul says that it is through the church that the manifold wisdom of God is being made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. So there's more going on than meets the eye. We're not just attending a meeting. The manifold wisdom of God that the church is proclaiming is being made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. In chapter three, verse 21, he prays that God would be glorified in the church. He wants to be glorified there. Chapter four is a marvelous passage about how we are to walk together in humility and unity and how the Lord builds up the saints to do the work of ministry. And then in chapter 5, he likens the church to the bride, to the bride of the groom. And in our text today, where I really want to get to are the, are the final verses, verses 19 to 22. He says that we are citizens of this kingdom, we are members of the family of God, and we're like stones in a temple. The church then lies, as John Stott says, at the very center of the eternal purposes of God. It is a great privilege to belong to his church he goes on to say it is not a divine afterthought it is not an accident of history on the contrary the church is God's new community and for this purpose his purpose is not just to save individuals and so perpetuate our loneliness but rather to build up his church that is to call out of the world a people for his own glory so I look forward to diving into this subject with you guys over the next several weeks this passage we're looking at verses 11 to 22 is really about our corporate identity one of the main themes in Ephesians is, is being in Christ. And this is a great question of our day. It's been a question really since creation, right? Like, who am I? It's been suggested that in the 20th century, the most common title of a poem among teenagers was, who am I? And if we're a Christian, we don't have to go looking for an identity. We have one. It's not in our popularity. It's not in our bank account. It's not in our class. We are in Jesus Christ, and this text shows us that we're also in his people. And so I'm going to get a running start uh, in verse 12 and look at the verses leading up to verse 19, but I really want to spend most of my time, if I can manage to do this, in verses 19 to 22. You notice what Paul is doing in verse 11 and 12. You circle the word remember. He wants us to remember who we used to be, what Christ has done, and now who we are as a result of that. And the whole passage really should stir up gratitude in our hearts as we think about who we used to be, but by grace who we are now, that we have a family to which we belong. So we want to remember. So three parts here, verses 11 and 12, separation, verses 13 to verse 18, reconciliation, verses 19 to 22, identification. Remember who you were, remember what Christ has done, and remember who you are now. Right? And let's live out of that identity that God has given us. So first of all, separation. He begins to talk to the Gentiles. This is a, a big focus here is on the fact that those who are far from God, Gentiles, and that would be the majority of all of us, right? that we were separated from Christ. We were without hope, without God, and he begins by, by having this mention of circumcision and Paul downplays its significance by just saying it was, it's made in the flesh by hands. And he's, what he's saying is that this existed in this older order of Judaism with all of its external features. What matters now, he says elsewhere, is a new creation. And Paul is building, beginning to build this argument to the Gentile believers that they're not second-class citizens, that they, they are actually full, privileged members of the people of God. But he wants them to remember where they used to be. And so he says in verse 12, remember that at one time you were separated from Christ. I don't have to tell you that there's nothing worse than being separated from Christ. And nothing greater than being united to Jesus Christ. But at one time we were separated. Bible teaches us that we are by nature sinners. We are separated. We are alienated from God. Remember that, he says. Remember what you used to be. Remember, added to that, he says, that you were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise. So you were apart from the people of God and you were not aware of the God of the, of the, of the covenants, the, the God of the Bible. You were strangers to all the promises that were made in the old covenant. Consequently, he says, having no hope and without God in the world. We were hopeless. We were godless. We were Christless. We were promiseless. That was our tragic position. And Paul says, remember this. Why? Because he's about to go through the greatest before-after. Like he did earlier in chapter 2 of Ephesians. He's going to do another one. This is who you were, but something has happened, and there's a new you. You know, this is greater than all the before-after photos you see where people are marketing stuff. Just take this pill. You can get some hair. Just, just eat at Subway. You can lose weight. You know, just get plastic surgery. Whatever it is, like there's before-after, and as you look at those commercials. You're thinking to yourself, you know, that could be me. I could have a mullet. I, I could have, you know, muscles. Like, there's, you, you begin to try to imagine yourself in this scenario. Well, this is true, actually. This is no marketing scheme that because of what Jesus Christ has done, that's not who we are anymore. We're not Christless. We have Christ. We're not hopeless. We have hope, right? We, we now have been transformed. And how has that happened? Well, notice verses 13 to 18, reconciliation. What Christ has done. And here's the pivot. But now. But now. That's the whole sermon right there, isn't it? There's a but now in your story. That's who you used to be. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who are once far off have been brought near. How, and how, how did we get brought near? By the blood of Jesus Christ. Now, for some people, the blood just sounds very archaic. And uh, you're labeled as a fundamentalist. Or it's just, uh, you know, kind of gross. A lot of people don't like the blood language of the Bible. They think the cross is overemphasized. Or that, uh, you know, it's irrelevant. Here's what two writers said. We believe that the popular fascination with and commitment to substitutionary atonement, that's Christ in our place, has had ill effects in the life of the church and in the United States and has little to offer the global church by way of understanding and embodying the message of Jesus Christ. Agree or disagree? (laughs) That's a bunch of scuba lot if I may be plain, right? This is all we have to offer to the world. Little to offer. We, through the cross of Jesus Christ, we have access to God. We have peace with God. We have eternal life. We have a new community. There is no cross without the blood, or no, no church without the blood. It is through Jesus Christ and what he has done, doing for us what we could not do for ourselves, that we have this new identity. And he's done a lot of things in this work. You notice all the action words here. He made, he's broken down, he's abolished, he's created, he's reconciled. What a Savior we have. What a Savior we have. For he himself, he says, is our peace. Our peace is in a person. It's tied to our union with Jesus Christ, the Prince of Peace. He himself is our peace. I pray you know this peace. We don't know it without him, as Augustine famously said it. Our hearts are restless until they find their rest in God. He's brought us peace. He's made us one, verses 14 to 17, where he says here that he has abolished, or he's, excuse me, he has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Paul drawing this imagery from the temple and the the wall of separation, and there was a real long-standing wall between Jew and Gentile. It's hard for us to really wrap our minds around how intense that rivalry and that division was. But what Jesus Christ has done on the cross is destroy the wall. Jesus brings unity where there could be no unity, right? You, you look around and you're like, how could I be a brother with a Yankee fan? It's the cross of Jesus Christ, right? How, how in the world could a Duke fan and a, and a Carolina fan be in the same church? How does this work? And you're like, no, there are no Duke fans that are Christians. But anyway, right? There are a few, there are a few. Uh, and there, you have all of these rivalries, PC and Mac, Republican and Democrats, Pepsi and Coke, Auburn and Alabama. But in Jesus Christ, we are family. We are one. As Paul says elsewhere, there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. We are all one in Christ Jesus. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised, he says to the Colossians, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all a glorious picture that he has brought us together he has destroyed the wall and he's made us family he's made us a church he's reconciled us both to god he says in this union with one another abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that is jesus fulfilled the old covenant he fulfilled all the types and the shadows that were wrapped up in that ceremonial system and he's created in himself i love this one new man Like we are a new community. We've been brought near by Christ. A new corporate entity exists called the church. It's not that the Gentiles have been transformed into Jews or vice versa, but rather God has created a new man. It's beautiful. Chrysostom, the old church father, said, It is though one took a statue of silver and a statue of lead, put them into a forge, and out came a statue of gold. One new man. And in this day in which there's so much tribalism and division, it's beautiful to come to a text like this and see what a display of unity. And Christ has done it. Christ has he's, he's brought us the reconciliation we desperately needed between us and God, but he's reconciled a people. And he's come, he says in verse 16, uh, and he has preached peace. He's reconciled us. That's what the cross achieved, but he's announced something. I love this idea that Christ has come to... And when did he preach peace? Well, I don't think we have to limit this to one of five options. I think right now what's important is Christ is proclaiming his peace through his people. And that's a wonderful... This is the grace of preaching. Christ is preaching in our preaching when we're preaching the gospel. He's proclaiming when we're proclaiming. This cross has achieved something, and this cross is being announced and he's preached that he says to those who are far off, speaking of Gentiles, and those who are near, speaking to the Jews. And because of this new reconciliation we have with God, our new identity as Christians, verse 18, we now both have access to God by the Spirit. It's through Jesus Christ that we have access to God. We'll talk more about this next week when we look at the passage in uh, Hebrews chapter 10. This verse is a beautiful verse because it teaches us so much about uh, prayer. We have access. We all understand this concept, don't we? Sometimes we're trying to get access to a person, or if we can't get a hold of them, we always say they're inaccessible. Or to a place you're trying to get to. The word was used in first century Greek to speak of approaching a, a person of rank, like a monarch. We have, Paul says, access to God. There's no need for an appointment. You don't need a special wristband. There's no protocol. You have access because of what Jesus Christ has done to God. Notice here that there's a humility in this prayer. It's only through Jesus, not our deeds, that gets us access. We don't deserve access, but we have it. There's not only a humility to prayer here, but there's a simplicity to prayer. You have access to the Father. Prayer is talking to our Father and we have access to him. As Keller put it well, the only person who dares wake up a king at 3 a.m. for a glass of water is the child of the king, and we have that kind of access. It's not only simplicity, but there's intimacy of prayer. It comes through the spirit. The spirit focuses us in prayer. So you see how prayer is a whole Trinitarian experience. To the Father, through the Son, by the spirit. But don't miss, again, the emphasis in Ephesians 2, There's not only just the humility of prayer and simplicity of prayer and intimacy of prayer, there's the community in prayer. We both have access to God by the Spirit. Now, we should pray privately, as Jesus says, shut the door and go to your prayer closet, but we're also taught to pray in the Sermon on the Mount, our Father. He's our Father, together. So, he says to the believers, remember who you used to be, Remember what Christ has done, and now remember what you have now become. Identification. And this is where I'd like to linger for a little bit. We now belong to this new community. You notice this transition again. So then, here's what I want you to know. Have you ever went somewhere and felt like you just don't belong? We've all experienced that, haven't we? I mean, you're a middle-aged adult. You feel that way sometimes. And you're like, I'm in middle school all over again. I remember taking my mom to Monday Night Football about, uh, I don't know, a dozen years ago, the New Orleans Superdome. And I take my mom who doesn't get out a whole lot. Um, she's never been on an airplane. She's just not big into events or anything. Uh, she is a great mom. Uh, but I was like, Mom, we're going to the Superdome. So we sat behind the goalposts, me and my dad and my mom and my wife. <laughs> Mom w- walks in, and we get to our seat, and she goes, I don't like this. <laughs> she was not impressed at all by the Superdome or Monday Night Football. She just didn't feel like she, she belonged. Well, we all can all recognize that. I remember in third grade, I didn't have a matching uniform. You got the team's got a uniform, and because you're not any good, you, you got like last year's uniform or something. And I've always felt so sorry for these kids when they run out. They, you're not even good enough to get the same uniform. Um, Well, in Christ Jesus, you belong. The church is holding out to the world the thing that the whole world longs for, to belong. Our God is a relational God, and he has created us for relationships. You can see this human desire all over the place in a number of ways, not least of which are the popular television shows, which often focus on community. In the 80s, it was cheers. Bunch of people around the bar, right? Sometimes you want to go where everybody knows your name. You, you know it, Ed. And, and, or In the 90s, it was friends, right? You got these people in Manhattan uh, living together and committing a bunch of sins, but nevertheless. In and, the and, and, uh, 2000s, it was Lost, a show largely about uh, relationships, albeit with dead people, but it was still about uh, people, Right? And now we literally have a show called Community. Right? And it's just going to keep on going forever because this is what people are interested in. That's why social media is a thing. And, and you long for it. You long for, to, to belong. Right? And, and, and God has provided the great solution to that human longing in the people of God. By grace, we have a people to whom we belong. Now, you have to maintain that depth and that intimacy. But Jesus has created it. We can't create this community. Jesus did. But we have to maintain it. And that's what he goes on to talk about more in chapter 4, right? You maintain it by not distancing yourself from your brothers and sisters. By spending time with each other and not avoiding uh, the the meetings together, as Hebrews says, right? And so as, as Paul now teaches us, he gives us three word pictures to help us Embrace our identity, our corporate identity, and to walk in it. The first is that we're citizens of God's kingdom. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens. Now, Some people may act like they're an alien. Uh, You may feel like a stranger. But you're not a stranger, not in the church, not a stranger and alien if you're in, in Christ, but you're fellow citizens with the saints. We're no longer refugees. We have a citizenship. As Lloyd-Jones says, we don't walk around with a passport, we have a birth certificate. I'm in this family. I'm not a second-class citizen if you're a Christian. You're not in someone else's territory. You're a full member of the kingdom. Paul's writing in a day in which Roman citizenship was was really prized. It had great privileges to say you're a Roman citizen. We know some of that. I've always enjoyed when the president, whoever it is, kind of begins their address by saying... uh, My fellow Americans, right? (laughs) And whether or not I like what they go on to say, I always feel like, oh, I'm an American. And it's a great blessing to be in this country. But there's nothing like being a citizen of the kingdom of God. Imagine Jesus Christ saying, my fellow citizens of the kingdom of God. That's what our Christ does. We're not strangers in some other city. You know, you go to another country, you feel vulnerable. You always want to make sure you got your papers on you. People leave their passports in bathrooms and all sorts of places. And, and, and uh, not that I am mentioning anybody in particular in the front row, but, but you, you want to always keep this, this passport on you because you're, you're vulnerable, right? Just left it in a bathroom in Paris. Uh, but anyway, uh, you're part of the kingdom, right? And the church, you see, is placed into this bigger uh, kingdom. We're like an embassy, a little outpost of the, of the kingdom of God. We get to show the world what the kingdom is like, what our king is like. Citizens of the kingdom, members of the family. Now, we understand, you know, having people in a country that's diverse, that's, you know, made up of different ethnicities and backgrounds and educational levels and so on. But Paul goes deeper than just saying that we're part of the same country, the same kingdom. Now, he says, we're actually family. You're citizens of with the saints and members of the household of God. One might imagine Jew and Gentile coming together into a kingdom, but to be a family is stunning. Why? We have the same father. We are adopted children of the father. I'm sure I've told this story before, but when we adopted uh, Joshua, he came home around August. This was around 11 years ago or so. He had Halloween, October. He had Thanksgiving in November and Christmas in December. It is a quite, quite a time to be introduced to, to all of these traditions. Uh, I mean, he thought Halloween was awesome. People just giving him candy. I love America, you know, just he, house by house. He, he would go to one door and he would get some candy and he'd be like, Papa, all done? I'm like, no, we got another Papa, all done? Next house. Like, no, we got another. And anyway, we go into to Christmas and there he was looking at that whole big family of, with, of my wife's. Big in, in terms of number. And um, just to clarify, great family by the way, phenomenal family. Uh, and <laughs> It was Christmas though, so we probably had sweatpants on. Uh, and he looks at me and he's like, Papa, are all these people our family? Sounds like, unfortunately man, all, the, all these people. <laughs> I'm just playing if they're watching. Um, But I did say that. And that's what it is with the church. We, when you become a Christian, you not only get a new status, new relation to your father, you get new brothers and sisters. And like a family, we have responsibilities in the family, right? It's a privilege, it's a great joy. John Stott says, brothers and sisters are the most common words for Christians in the New Testament. (laughs) What's Christianity about? Brothers and sisters. It's this a beautiful simplicity to it. Now, we call each other brother and sister all the time when we forget people's names in the church. Right? I mean, I do that for a living. Uh, how, how you doing, brother? Um, or back when I was in college, that's when the girls, if she didn't want to go out with a guy, she would always say, Now, nah, I like you like a brother. That was a nice way to kind of let the guy down, you know. But it is a miracle of Jew and Gentile. Miracle. people of different backgrounds, wildly different backgrounds, but in Christ Jesus, being brother and sister. We're citizens of the kingdom. We're members of the family. Thirdly, we are stones in God's temple. This metaphor is very vivid, and it would have been very, um, very intriguing to the original audience because in Ephesus, they had the massive temple to their goddess, and of course, in Judaism, they had the temple in Jerusalem, and now... Paul says there's a new temple that has been created in the church when he says that you are members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. The foundation of the temple is God's word. I think that's what Paul means when he speaks of the apostles and the prophets. They were teachers, but I think what he's emphasizing is their instruction. And this shouldn't surprise us because the church stands or falls based upon its faithfulness to God's word. Acts 2.42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. And we must do the same. Jesus Christ is the only cornerstone. He is the one who gives alignment to the building. But Paul adds to this metaphor something dynamic when he says that in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. So he likens us to stones, and Jesus not only gives alignment and stability, but he is also the source of growth and vitality to the church. You remove Jesus with no church. He's the cornerstone to the church. He makes it possible, and he makes it uh, able to grow and, and, and be fruitful. And he says, you Gentiles have been added to this. In him, you also. You were once far off. You also now have been built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. The purpose of the temple was the same purpose in the Old Testament, only it's greater. It was to be a dwelling place for God. And now, we as the people of God enjoy this incredible blessing of having God dwell with us. God dwells with us individually. God dwells with us corporately. And it's only through Him, in Him, in Jesus Christ, that we have this unspeakable privilege. What a temple we're part of. A people from every tribe, language, people, and nation. So then, our New Testament scholar, Snodgrass, well, I feel sorry for the guy. He, that's a great name. Says it right, that this is a significant text on the church. And my final reflection for you, church, is this. Let's elevate our concept of the church to align ourselves with such a passage. Christ wants to create a people for himself not isolated individuals who believe in him but a people for himself and to separate oneself from the church is like saying I want to be a stone apart from the building I want to be a son or daughter separated from my family I want to be a refugee away from my country no Christ has come to make us part of the temple he's come to make us part of the family he's come to make us part of this kingdom He has brought us in. We who were once far off have been brought near. And the New Testament is is here calling us to have this view of the church. We show that we're part of the universal church, one holy church, by identifying with a real community in a local church. It is like our union with Jesus Christ. We don't simply say we are united to Christ, though we do and that's wonderful, but we live out that union through faith and obedience, we live it out visibly. And we live out our corporate identity visibly by be- belonging to a local body of believers. And this is so important for us because the New Testament is assuming every Christian is part of a church and that we're living out our faith with our brothers and sisters under the care of oversight, uh, uh, overseers and elders with mutual accountability and support with brothers and sisters. This is how God intends for us to live together and to flourish in this world until we see Jesus Christ and the kingdom of God is come in all of its fullness. And isn't it a gift? You just read this text again and again and again. To, to, by God's grace, this is true about us. These are realities. We are part of this kingdom. We're part of this family. We're part of this temple. And it is a gift of grace to live out that identity visibly, week by week as we gather together for worship, as we sit under God's word, as we take the Lord's Supper, as we love one another, as we bear one another's burdens, as we care for each other, as we use our gifts to build up the body, as we give money to reach the nations, as we proclaim the gospel and live on mission together. All of these privileges and responsibilities have come to us because of Jesus Christ. He's brought us near. He's made us a people. And this brings us great joy. And this has been my my prayer uh, for several weeks now as we think about uh, being the church from Martin Lloyd-Jones. The greatest need, he says, of the hour is for a revived and joyful church. Unhappy Christians, he says, are a poor recommendation of the faith. The exuberant joy of the early Christians was one of the most potent factors in the spread of Christianity. I love that. I think one of the most undervalued trait of a Christian leader is joy, right? And uh, one of the most undervalued features, perhaps, in the church is joy. And one of the things that's most attractive about a church or a Christian leader is the presence of joy, and it's not conjured up and it's not faked. It needs to be real. It needs to be from the Spirit of God who revives His people. And may God do it. May God give us a revived and joyful church for our good, for the good of our witness to the watching world, and to the glory of Jesus Christ, who is the head of the church. He is the groom of the bride, and he is the great shepherd of the sheep. To him be the glory. Father, we bless you for your word today. I pray that by your spirit you would write it on our hearts. Help us to live out of this identity, this union we have with Jesus Christ and this fellowship we have with one another, and may we never cease to praise you for all that you have done for us in Jesus Christ. We give our attention now to him as we think about his death on the cross, reconciliation he's brought as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper. Lord Jesus, you said, do this in remembrance of me. And we want to reflect, remember afresh. And we pray that you would give us a heightened sense of joy and gratitude for all that you are. In your good name we pray. Amen.